Okay, let's uh, please stand now and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, which will be our New Testament reading before we go back to the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Luke 1, verses 26 to 33. Let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Every word that you have spoken is true. Lord, we pray that you would help us to submit our hearts to the authority of your word tonight, to listen with faith and obedience. Show us Christ, we pray. Strengthen our faith, um, and uh, give us, we pray, the life that you have promised uh, that comes through your living word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Amen. Let's turn back now to Isaiah chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 1 through 10 tonight. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, 
and his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. You may be seated. While we were in North Carolina visiting family last week, uh, one of the mornings we had some downtime and I ended up taking the kids to a playground uh, near my sister's house, a place called Womble Park. And the playground was great, but um, one of the most interesting things that we saw there was in the natural area next to the playground, there were some nice trees uh, there and things. And um, one of them was very unusual. It's going to be kind of hard to describe, but you can kind of try to picture it. The, the trunk started at this very, very low angle to the ground, um, and uh, uh, it was about five or six feet long, but over that five or six feet, it only rose about three feet off the ground, so it was slanted over. Um, uh, in fact, that part of the tree, it appeared, had kind of split open in the middle, and they had actually filled it with concrete, um, I think it was actually to, it it was sort of like an accessory to the playground almost because it it allowed kids not to get their feet kind of jammed in the crack and also they could then climb up. And then when you got to the top, at the highest end, it was sort of rounded off and kind of slick and shiny where you could tell a lot of kids had slid off the end of this uh, piece of tree trunk, I guess. Uh, you climb up and slide down. It didn't didn't take my kids long to figure it out. It's like, oh, this is what you do with this thing. It's obviously designed for this. Um... But here's the amazing thing. This tree, split open trunk, concrete poured in and everything, it was not dead. It was very much alive. There was another, um, well, now it's a trunk. Surely at one point it had merely been a branch um, growing off to an angle out of the side of this trunk, uh, smaller or lower trunk, and kind of coming out at a crooked angle until it reached up And its canopy was right up there, along with the canopy of the other trees surrounding it. It looked as though that the bottom part was from maybe an older time in the tree's life, when it had been maybe blown over or something, pushed over or something happened to it years ago. But then coming out of the upper part was this new trunk. I would love to know the, the story of that tree's life. How did all these things happen? When did they happen? What, what were the circumstances? At some point, that tree was just a sapling. It was just coming up out of the ground. It was a brand new tree. And then this you know, trauma occurred, but it did not kill that tree. It continued to grow. And that one van- branch eventually became the new main trunk of that tree reaching up to the sky. It was it was remarkable, and naturally it reminded me of the passage I would be preaching on when we got back into town. We're going to look at this passage tonight in three parts. The first, we're going to label the stump, the shoot, and the spirit, verses 1 and 2. The second, verses 3 to 5, will be the character of Christ's kingship. And then third, a picture of perfect peace, verses 6 to 10. All right, so first, the stump, the shoot, and the spirit. Um, it's challenging whenever we kind of parachute into the middle of a book like this um, to, to make sense of a passage um, 
without reading a lot of context around it. And, and ideally, we'd just read Isaiah 1 through 10 also, but we don't have time for that, obviously. Uh, but I'm going to direct your attention for context to a couple places. One is the, en- the very end of chapter 10, right before the passage I read. Um, and also, I want to direct your attention back to chapter 6 and something that occurs there. To answer the question, what is this stump of Jesse all about in Isaiah? Why is Jesse being pictured as a stump in the, in the first place? Uh, stump, you think about it, is to all, to all outward appearances a dead piece of wood. The remnants of a tree that used to be great, a has-been tree, you could say. Um, and we want to ask the question, who cut it down? How did it get like this? The sobering answer to that question from earlier in Isaiah is, well, the, the Lord did. The Lord cut this tree down. In chapter 6, uh, Isaiah has his famous vision of the throne room of the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. And God commissions him there for his prophetic ministry. And he says, Isaiah, you need to know that um, most of the people that you preach to are not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen. But I want you to keep preaching to them anyway. And for how long? He says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. See, this is where the stump imagery comes in there in that chapter. As the Lord goes on, he says, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. That is the picture of Israel's future. It's coming because they're rebellion against the Lord. The way they have broken his covenant. That is what Israel is going to be like when the Lord gets finished, bringing covenant judgment upon them. They're going to be like a tree that's been cut down and only the stump remains. Now, that sounds pretty awful, and it is. Um, But notice that the Lord deliberately mentions the stump that's left behind. He mentions that stump that's left behind because that stump in this prophetic word picture imagery is from the very beginning a sign of hope. It represents, uh, comes to be called the faithful remnant. Major theme in the book of Isaiah. The faithful few who are going to listen to God's prophet, who are going to keep trusting and keep following the Lord. Israel is not going to be completely destroyed, even though it is going to look that way to an outside observer. And so that chapter ends... With this conclusion, the holy seed or the holy offspring is its stump. So Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah, identifies the stump as the faithful remnant, the holy offspring. And think of in terms of Genesis, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the, serp- of the serpent. Okay, so that's Isaiah 6. Fast forward now to Isaiah chapter 10. Um, in the intervening chapters, God has been giving um, warnings about the coming invasion of the Assyrian armies. They're going to carry off the northern kingdom. They're going to wreak havoc in Judah. And um, he even describes Assyria as his axe in chapter 10, verse 15. So Assyria is the axe that's going to cut down the tree of Israel and leave the stump 
behind. At the end of chapter 10, then he returns to that tree imagery one more time when he says this. He says, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. This is verse 33. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. That's what it's going to be like when the Assyrians invade. It is going to look and feel like the nation of Israel will never be able to recover from this. So terrible is that judgment going to be as though the tree has been cut down with an axe. But then you come to chapter 11. All throughout Isaiah, there are these alternating messages of judgment and salvation that keep coming back to back and back and forth. And so once we have this proclamation of severe judgment of the tree being felled by the axe of Assyria. Chapter 11 comes and says, but from that stump that's been cut down, from that stump, a living shoot is going to sprout again. The Assyrian invasion is not going to be the utter end of Israel. Why? Because Israel's roots are in the promises of God, the covenant promises of God who is determined on his side to keep that covenant alive, to keep all of the promises that he made for the everlasting future of his people and that he cannot go back on um, in spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of everything that they could possibly do to the contrary. God is going to keep his covenant promises to Israel. And so you see this shoot is going to come up out of that stump. Why? Because of the supernatural intervention of God who's going to break in to bring life out of apparent death. New hope where before there was only bare, hopeless despair. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse, of course, was the father of King David, Israel's greatest king. So this prophecy is concentrated particularly on the, on the kingship of, of Judah, specifically. So God is promising that a royal descendant of David is going to come one day to take up the mantle of David. But that's not the best part, because it goes on. A descendant of David, that's going to be terrific in itself, just to know that David's line is going to survive, just like God promised it would, that he's not going to lack a man to sit on the throne. Um, but what's even better than him being a son of David is that, like David, he is going to be anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what comes in verse 2. Uh, don't forget, by the way, um, that David himself, King David, in his life experienced a special anointing by the Holy Spirit for his uh, work of warfare and kingship on Israel's behalf. In 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel symbolically anoints David with oil, it says in that chapter that from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So that same Holy Spirit then who made David the great 
God-fearing, psalm-writing, victory-winning king that he was is the same Holy Spirit who's going to come to rest upon this future son of David. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Something we have to remember about the life and ministry of Jesus is that the Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. It was the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, who empowered the man Christ Jesus for all the work that he did on earth as our Savior. You can see this from the very beginning in his conception. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The, Holy, the Spirit of God is going to rest upon you, Mary. And that's why the child to be born of you is going to be called Holy, the Son of God. It's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then you remember when he embarks on his public ministry, in that first synagogue sermon that he gives in uh, Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, he quotes from another part of Isaiah to a similar effect, Isaiah 61, when he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the messianic ministry of Jesus was a Holy Spirit-empowered ministry. That is precisely the kind of ministry that a faithful Israelite who had been reading their Isaiah properly would have expected the Messiah's ministry um, to be like. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon it. Well, we've already established um, then that this, this person Isaiah is looking forward to is the heir of King David, successor to King David. Um, Isaiah is looking forward to a restored, renewed, revived kingship for the people of God. Um, but this king, Isaiah is quick to point out next, this king is going to be a very special king, unlike the ones that Israel and Judah have often suffered under up to this time since... David's day. So look at what comes next here, this description of what we're calling the character of Christ's kingship. And his delight, it says, shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. in our Judges series that we're taking a break from right now. Um, we were just learning about what very bad king. <laughs> about Abimelech, right? One of the worst. Gideon's son. Now, consider how very, very different uh, this description of this king is from that man, from Abimelech. Think of his, his cruelty. Think about his irreverence, his uh, idolatry, his arrogance. This king is going to be the opposite of all of those things that are all too common, not just Abimelech, many other kings of Israel and Judah, many other kings and 
government leaders down through time among many nations. This is a gentle king, a king who is gentle with those who need gentleness, who protects the weak, who defends the vulnerable, who seeks to do what is really right and not merely what's advantageous. You notice how he is able to see below the surface, how this king is someone who takes time to figure out what's really going on instead of just listening to the loudest or most influential voices. Uh, uh, For this king, might doesn't make right. Rather, he uses his might to do what is right, whatever the cost. At the same time, I mentioned that he was a gentle king, but uh, you can't stop there. That's not his only characteristic, right? He's gentle with people who need gentleness, gentle with the vulnerable and the weak. At the very same time, he's also what? He's also a very fierce judge. He's a very strong king with overwhelming power brought to bear against anyone who would rebel against his rule. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And all of these characteristics, this this wonderful portrait of this, this character of Christ's kingship, all of this is undergirded by the most fundamental thing, which is the fear of the Lord, the beginning of all wisdom. This is how this description, this character sketch begins and ends. uh, Beginning verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then it ends by saying that righteousness is the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a righteous king who fears God. Now, if you have even a passing familiarity with the book of Isaiah, you know This is not the kind of king that Israel deserves, according to the Lord's assessment. But it is absolutely the kind of king that Israel needs. The kind that the faithful, believing remnant in Israel, who were still listening to the prophet, would have been longing for. Why can't we just have a king like that again? So often, though, Israel and Judah got very different kings, kings much more like Abimelech than they were like David. Um, But see, what's happening here is the Lord, through Isaiah, is promising them. He's promising them that for all of the disasters that are going to come upon this nation in the near future, for all of the bleakness of what they are going to see when they look at the covenant covenant people, and it's going to look like a, a, a dead stump in the ground, they can be comforted by this this promise that when everything looks lost, a king is one day going to come, fresh growth out of that dead-looking wood. The all-but-extinct line of the descendants of David is going to come to life again in one man with a capital M who is going to embody in his life and work everything that they're longing for. A little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets, in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years, all of those years of waiting and wondering and those successive changes of spring to summer to fall to winter and back again without a sign of green coming up out of that stump. Those hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee 
tonight. Well, finally, I want us to see what the outcome is going to be for, for God's people when this hoped-for king comes. Not just for God's people either, but for the world, for the cosmos, for the creation. When you see in verses six to ten, what you see in verses six to ten is a is a, a prophetic picture, it's imagery. Um, in our study of the book of Revelation in adult Sunday school, we've been talking about how prophecy uh, routinely uses symbols to communicate. Prophecy uses symbols. This is, and so what you see here is a symbolic scene representing what? It's representing unbroken harmony and wholeness and peace. Um, the word shalom doesn't appear in this passage, but if, if you're familiar with that shalom concept from other parts of the Old Testament, that is what's being pictured here. This is a picture of perfect peace. When this king comes, God's people are going to be completely secure, 100% secure. And all of the things that seem to them right now to be life-threatening are no longer going to be life-threatening anymore. And so you have all these wild animals that I say list: wolves, leopards, lions, bears, oh my, right? All these wild animals. Um, if you wanted to make a catalog of the most deadly animals that you could think of, or at least the ones that would have been familiar to Isaiah's audience, these are ones that would make the list. Uh, the cobra and the adder, too, these extremely venomous, deadly snakes. And, and yet what's happening? With each one of these, right down the line, right beside these wild animals, these deadly wild animals, you find the lamb. You find the calf, these weak baby animals. They can't take care of themselves uh, in general, much less with predators around them. And yet there they are, right there together, the lamb, the calf, a nursing baby, and a little child leading these animals, you know, leading them along on a string or something. These these terrors of the natural world have now become tame under the rule of this great God-fearing king who's going to give to Israel what they currently do not have, and that is a true and lasting and unshakable security. Now, contrast this picture of peace with what Isaiah has been telling them they're to expect when the Assyrians come. That brutal invasion of one of the worst, most barbaric armies um, ever to sweep across the Middle East. That invasion is going to be the opposite of everything he's describing here in verses 6 to 10. It's going to be awful. But that is exactly why this symbolic picture of the final future would have been so precious to people who were listening to Isaiah's message with faith, who were willing to respond in obedience, that they knew that that invasion of the Assyrian armies was not going to be the end of the story. There was this hope on the other side. Notice in verse 10 that the scope of this vision for the future uh, broadens beyond Israel, too. This is not just good news for Israel. It is good news for the world, the earth, he says, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That root of Jesse is going to stand, he says, as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
Think about this then. Isn't it striking? In light of this passage from Isaiah then, to hear this as the Old Testament background echoing in the message of the angels that they had for those shepherds outside Bethlehem. Think about it. Fear not. Well, there it is right there. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be, well, just for Israel for now. No, that will be for all the people, right? It will be for all the people. That's what Isaiah is giving the people of God here. Good news of great joy that's not just for them. It's going to be for all the people. It's for the whole world, for the whole cosmos. It's for all the people all over the world. From Isaiah's point of view, this is a hope, though, for the distant future. But what's happening when those angels come to those shepherds? He's speaking about it. In, that angel speaking about it in present tense. Right? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What for Isaiah was this vision of the distant future has become in the coming of Christ a living present. is springing into fulfillment. That shoot has come to life springing up out of the stump. See, this is what Jesus came ultimately to bring through his life and ministry and death and resurrection. He came to bring about the fulfillment of this prophetic vision of Isaiah. That's narrowing it down too much. He's, he came to being the fulfillment of, of everything that God had revealed before in the Old Testament. But it includes this. This is a big part of it, to bring the fulfillment of this Picture of perfect peace in the final future of the people of God. This is the destiny of God's entire plan for his creation and for us in it as his people. For us to live under the kingship of a perfect king who will keep us perfectly secure and give to us perfect peace that nothing can ever disrupt, that nobody can take away. And it's the same kind of one of the reasons that we can say this with such confidence is because there are so many parallels with the kind of picture we get in Revelation. What God promises about the new Jerusalem, remember how they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Once again, there's that perfect righteousness, that perfect peace, that perfect Security as God wipes away every tear from their eyes, there will be no more pain or sorrow anymore because the former things have passed away. That's what's going to come for people from every nation and tribe and tongue who are going to come to Jesus and who are going to receive from him the free gift of salvation and life that is found only in him because he is that lone shoot coming up out of the stump. He is the one in whom all of these promises come true and find their fulfillment there. Yes, and amen, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read verses 6 to 10, you may be thinking, oh, wait a second, Jesus has come, he's supposed to bring bringing this into fulfillment. When I read those verses, this is not what life feels like for me right now. And many times it's not, right? We live, of course, in between in between the first and second comings of Jesus. 
the full realization of this picture of perfect peace is yet future, in a sense, for us too. And in fact, it may be that at times your life feels, frankly, like that lifeless stump more than anything else. You reflect on your sin and your foolish choices, your wasted opportunities, your regrets, the brokenness of your body, the brokenness of your heart. See, my life feels like the stump. There's no life there. But I want to ask you, what does this passage teach you about the character of God? What does this passage teach you about who God is? This passage teaches you that God is a God who brings life out of death. He's a God who brings fresh growth out of what appears to be lifeless, what appears to be too far gone for any good to come out of it. That is what he did in the history of his people when he brought this prophecy to fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. That is what he did in the life of Jesus, too, when he raised him from the dead after he had gone to the cross. And so now the comfort of this prophecy offered to the faithful remnant of Israel listening to Isaiah's preaching in those times, many centuries before Jesus came, can continue to offer comfort to us as the people of God today. Because even as it reminds us of the first coming of Jesus, and I hope it does help us to reflect on that first coming, the birth of Christ, in a, in a deeper and richer way. But it also teaches us a couple other things. It teaches us to trust that same God in the present, right now, when life for us feels like a lifeless stump, and we are longing for green shoots to come up by God's life-giving grace. And in the end, this passage teaches you one more thing, and that is to wait, to wait in hope for him to come again. Because when he comes again, there's going to be no more future aspect anymore. It is all going to be the living present for the people of God as he comes to complete that good work that he's begun to bring in that day when the earth shall indeed be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and his resting place will be our resting place, one and the same, forever. And that will indeed be something glorious to be a part of. I have a foretaste of it now. The fullness is coming. And so even as this passage comforts us in the present, it also teaches us what to look forward to in the future. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that according to your promise, there did come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots has borne fruit even in our own lives and experience. And in this church, that branch is still bearing fruit. And we pray that that fruit would increase and multiply, be even more and more of it. Lord, we also pray you would teach us to wait with patience, like you called the faithful remnant in Isaiah's day, to wait in patience for the fulfillment of all of your promises to us in Christ. As we still feel that stump-like experience, Lord, we pray you would bring fresh green shoots and help us to wait with patience for the final revelation of your new life in the new heavens and new earth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.